Hello, and welcome to Signs of the Times on CKUT, where we try to understand the uncharted cultural waters that we find ourselves in today, and how we can steer our social trajectory in a better direction. Each week we are joined by activists, artists, and academics doing interesting or empowering work in Diodiage. I'm your host, Olive, and today we are joined by Elle and Laura. Elle, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, uh, my name is Elle. I'm a third-year student at Concordia in Sociology and First People Studies. I'm also a research assistant focusing on decolonization, healing, etc. and so forth. Um, I'm a settler. I grew up in California and then moved to Canada. And now I'm here in Jojage or Montreal, and I'm happy to be here. Thanks for coming on the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, Laura, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show today. Uh, my name is Laura. I'm from the U.S. also. Um, I'm not an official uh, scholar right now like Elle, but I am a big podcast nerd. Um, and my uh, my interests are in grassroots and non-institutional responses to climate change and to other social issues. Um, and I have some organizing experience in US, the U.S. and in Montreal. Great. It's so nice to have you on the show. Um, so th- our main topic for today is, are we in or moving towards revolutionary times? Um, I think we can all agree that these days have been pretty unprecedented, uh, especially in the last couple years. So when we say revolutionary times, we're thinking periods of great social and political unrest, which often lead to large changes or conflicts within a culture. Um, on a historical scale, we seem to be living in one of the greatest periods of social unrest in the last 50 years. There, the economic order has been pretty um, dominant and consistent um, ever since the 70s, but especially in the last 10 years or so, real cracks are beginning to show in the system as a whole. And it seems that um, people are largely losing faith in um, liberal democracy as it's currently set up. Now, there's lots of different forces that are driving our culture in this direction. Um, One of the main forces is... um, well, the global power is continuing to accelerate the climate crisis. So right now, the UN is meeting to um, try to come up with solutions for the climate crisis. And um, despite everybody's dire warnings of what's coming in the next, you know, 10, 15 years, uh, the global powers are unwilling to make any kind of meaningful changes. But... um, that feeling of um, hopelessness or powerlessness, that, um, that lack of action on the part of the power structure tends to cultivate in a lot of us is to some extent an illusion because there is actions that we can take on the ground here. Part of that action includes um, developing greater regional autonomy and getting involved with the environmental struggle in our local area. Um, Elle or Laura, would you have anything to speak about that? Um, sure, yeah. Just thinking about the UN, and I think it's called COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland mm-hmm. right now. And um, yeah, it's interesting. I went to 
like a youth assembly UN conference in 2018 in New York City and it was really interesting just seeing how much how many there were like over like a thousand youth there from a hundred over a hundred different countries and we were all there to like represent our region and honestly the best part of it was hearing from every like young person and what they're doing in their community and just seeing the difference between the direct action that youth are taking within their own smaller regions versus the symbolic action or reports or declarations that the UN makes. It's such like a stark difference between the two. And Mm -hmm. it really like affirms the fact that youth have always been doing this work and taking on the brunt of, you know, what needs to be done. And even now in COP26, like there are youth activists that are protesting the, um, the, I guess, the assembly. And um, Mm -hmm. it's spearheaded by a lot of indigenous youth, um, many of which in Canada. So people from so-called the Sunshine Coast in BC are spearheading it. And it's just really, it really affirms the fact that youth action and um, people in our generation have a very different perspective that's more centered around uh, materialistic change and um, yeah, really putting our bodies forth to um, enact that change, so. Yeah, I think what's interesting too is I'm just, I'm just starting to, to try to understand, um, like I, I, I wonder if, so we've known about climate change and its effects for a long time. <laughs> and since, you know, some of the science that we know that we have right now is as old as the 1970s. People have known that this is going, this is where we were headed. Um, There's not a surprise, even if, you know, some of the manifestations are surprising and horrifying. Um, Like this has been known for a long time. Mm -hmm. Something I'm I'm wondering about too, with um, these generations of so-called millennials and zoomers and all of this is, Mm -hmm. I feel that people are no longer reaping the same increase in material well-being mm. that our parents and our grandparents right. saw mm-hmm. where where you know where because of inflation because of um the decline in in working conditions um at least in the u.s and in canada as well um because of the the rise of housing and like wages not keeping pace with all of this mm-hmm. right and that's just for cities like um uh, I wonder if part of what's going on too is that people <laughs> they're seeing that like the the equation like oh if we just extract stuff from the earth mm-hmm. it's like a devil's bargain but at least we get uh, a safer and like happier life and like a more like uh, secure life it's like people are seeing the end of that bargain yeah, yeah <laughs> where they're like sure. oh we also get uncertainty and we also mm-hmm. get hurricanes we also dispossess all of these people from their cultural land I, I i wonder about that too yeah 100 and i think um this idea that oh don't worry it always gets better for the next generation has been like mm-hmm. a founding part of um capitalist mythology for a long time and totally it, it's now so blatantly not true mm-hmm. you know yeah um i think that it's really forced a reckoning 
for a lot of people in our generation to really confront um, the system that we're living in just because they have no mm -hmm. other choice. Yeah. Yeah. And to confront just like what, okay, so what does it look, what does constant growth look like? Mm -hmm. Like growth that's based mm -hmm. on consumption. It's and a sort of like, we are always, we've been told that it's sustainable or that it like can go to some good place. And we're like, it's sort of obvious now that growth cannot be, uh, it cannot be sustained. Like we can't have yeah. another five industrial revolutions on mm -hmm. this planet yep. and survive. <laughs> yeah. 100%. And, yep. it, you know, we don't even see the benefit of the growth, you know? Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> our living conditions and our actual ability to live full, flourishing lives mm -hmm. have not mm -hmm. really been substantially improved. No. And it's largely mm -hmm. like these artificial um, uh, constraints that this system imposes upon us mm -hmm. in order to extract our wealth that, like, is driving that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Completely. Um, but, you know, the other thing that we're seeing due to these terrible economic conditions is um, the beginning of a resurgence of a real labor movement in the United States, mm -hmm. which I think is really exciting because um, it seems like we need more unions if we want to be able to affect real change. Mm -hmm. Being able to have um, some economic power seems absolutely essential for being able to negotiate our demands. Um, so not only are there all these strikes ongoing, you know, the John Deere strike, um, there's a coal miner strike right now, all these different things, but um, there's actually 5 million uh, workers in the States that are refusing to go back to work because of the labor conditions. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a strike is defined by workers withholding their labor. And um, scholars um, of very high repute, like Noam Chomsky, are saying that even though we're not reporting on it right now, looking back in history, we're going to be referring to this period as the great strike of 2021. Mm. And um, knowing how bad the economic conditions are, I really hope that some of that energy can trickle down into Canada, into Montreal, and we can begin um, becoming more organized to fight for better conditions here. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, I mean... Also something that's, I don't know quite how to put this, but something that I, that I see as like, uh, I'm painting with broad strokes here, but a, like a cultural difference between the US and Canada that I've observed is more of an understanding in Canada and in Quebec that, um, that our work does not define our worth Mm. as a human and yes. a, a, yes. of our existence. I think there's more people here who experiment and it's partially because of the, the social, um, the social programs that exist to encourage that. Mm -hmm. But there's also, I think just a, a difference in ideology. I think the American ideology of, you know, the Protestant work ethic is very, very strong. Right. Um, yeah. And the need to work constantly is very, very strong because of the social and economic conditions. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it's something that gives me hope too, because um, I'm not sure how to finish this thought, <laughs> but it's something that gives me hope because, yeah, because I think that a lot of the social movements and change that we need will need to center life over work. Yes. As in like preserving life, preserving the land. Um, and 
yeah, it doesn't, it's not always a dichotomous choice like that. Often like working hard is a way to preserve life as well. But Mm -hmm. anyway, there's something promising in that, in like the culture of the culture of this place. Yeah. To me. Yeah. And I feel like even like intergenerationally, that's like a big shift in, like you Mm -hmm. said, ideology and a big shift in how we affect future generations too. Like thinking, you know, several generations down the line I think our generation has is like implementing that point of view much more than past generations have um thinking Mm -hmm. about people that come after us um which is kind of like sort of a definition of sustainability too like thinking Mm -hmm. of you know time like a long-term way of thinking which is not necessarily something that I feel like humans have innately always had in terms like under capitalism because um, mm-hmm. it forces us into short term thinking and mm-hmm. getting by and surviving and being on survival mm-hmm. mode, which is not sustainable for the world, but also individually, like in our hearts and minds, like being in survival mode is really hurtful to yeah, every part of ourselves, you know, so Completely. it really is about our ability to exist and to thrive. And I think part of that is like this refusal and refusal to the structures that endanger our ability to live um and coming from like a more grounded place of um yeah thinking of generations down the line and what olive said earlier about chomsky's view of this time and you know the great strike of the time made me think of um Joanna Macy, who is a writer and uh, I believe also a therapist who calls this time the great unraveling as well. So Mm -hmm. kind of about we're unraveling all of these structures around us that have also been internalized within ourselves. And Mm -hmm. we're really it's a really good imagery of like maybe even unraveling like a spool of yarn or like of of um like wire or something like that, just like Mm -hmm. unraveling everything that has us confined into these boxes, like even just boxes of like gender and Mm -hmm. patriarchy and, you know, certain. Yeah. I feel like the, um, um, the, the unraveling of a lot of these institutions also like, um, a lot of it is obviously value-based, but a lot of it just comes in the questioning of these things that have mm-hmm. been deeply held as like dominant assumptions in our culture, that it is normal to divide gender and force people into a specific path um, from the moment they're born and mm-hmm. all these things. And part of what I really love about living in this city in particular is that there is such a vibrant queer community mm-hmm. and there's such a strong desire, especially in our generation for queer liberation to move beyond like these rigid binaries and these structures that force us into being a certain way and to be able to um, express ourselves and live as we truly are and feel. And I think that kind of freedom, that kind of ability to not be constrained by structures that were set up long before we were ever born um, Mm -hmm. is a real sign of um, revolutionary thinking Mm -hmm. and the desire to create a new paradigm that works better for all of us. Definitely. 
It's also the the metaphor of unraveling. I think is really nice that you brought that up, L, because it um, it suggests like you can kind of start with any thread mm-hmm. and it will unravel the whole eventually. Right. Which I I, I often that. feel when we're thinking about like our pre- the pre- the state of affairs. Mm-hmm. It's almost like if you start trying to address one problem, you always get back to the whole of all the problems. Mm-hmm. And that can both be overwhelming and very promising because it sort of means that you can start anywhere. So you're mm-hmm. like, oh, wow, people don't have enough food. But um, And if you start trying to address these problems, okay, for food, we need to do this and this and this. And it, it always leads you back to kind of the center of the way that the world is organized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I like that unraveling metaphor for that reason as well. Mm-hmm. It leads you to the center. Even mm-hmm. if you start with any thread, it leads you to the center of the the knot. Mm-hmm. I agree, Definitely. and I th- I think that that's um, that leads really beautifully into intersectionality and, and mm-hmm. uh, intersectional feminism. So mm-hmm. we have seen um, liberal feminism become a dominant ideological position over the last ten years, and we've really seen the limitations of that. So like um, trying to address racial issues through representation, for example or um, incorporating people into the power structure instead of questioning like the foundations of the power structure itself. And the rise of intersectional theory, uh, which is explicitly recognizing that all forms of oppression are interconnected and that we cannot make these changes without addressing all of them at once, um, is very, very exciting, especially if it Um, moves to a broader audience. I think a lot of the struggles that have taken place over the last few decades have um, been very hyper-focused in their area. So it's like, okay, we're just going to fight for animal rights, or we're just going to fight for um, housing, or whatever, without looking at the way that these things mutually rely on each other to build, like, a real sense of liberation in these communities Mm -hmm. and Mm. talking about the way that all these things um, interconnect, I think helps you realize that by addressing these problems on the ground here, by building solutions in our local communities, we can begin to address these problems where we are. Mm -hmm. And even if we can't affect, you know, the total paradigm shift we need by just, you know, doing our thing in our location. Um, We can begin that process just by being determined and taking direct action. Mm -hmm. And if we get enough of a ball rolling, if we have enough momentum as a movement, um, if we build enough power, we really can have an influence on other places and how they're developing as well. That's part of what I really love about, or um, what fills me with hope about being in Montreal, is that this is such a cultural center. And even if um, we're not as based in the center of culture that is the United States, uh, things that happen in Montreal do affect what goes on in the States. And I think um, the connections between Quebec and the rest of the East Coast really demonstrate that, what with like... um, the interaction between uh, the student protests and the East Coast, or various other um, events that have taken place in the in the 2010s and 2000s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the late 90s, there was this organization, NIFAC, 
um, that was a, a pan Canadian or pan. Um, it was a Northeastern Federation of something, two letters that someone should look up at home that I don't remember. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was a, it was um, kind of an unusual, it's not something I've seen in previous years where it was like a, a very coordinated um, federation of anarchist movements and otherwise in uh, both the east, the eastern coast of of this entire continent, so spanning the two the two uh, countries. Anyway, yeah, just recent history that's not often um, not often remembered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Like that makes me just think of like globalization and how it like I feel like globalization can be definitely a negative thing in a lot of ways, but also a sign of hope and like a strength in terms of communication across many different places and aided by, you know, the internet and social media, which can also be a very negative thing, but also can be used to our strength to, you know, band together and have more global movements towards um, what we envision for our future. Yeah. Um, I think it, I think like, even though there's tons of downsides to globalization and um, the state of the internet currently, Mm growing up in in this kind of interconnected world has really helped, I think, um, move people towards a more internationalist mindset, move people in a direction where they see that the struggles that are taking place in um, another country or, you know, another location are still intimately related to their struggle Mm -hmm. and also beginning to um, not let borders define cultural barriers for us. Mm -hmm. So recognizing that, like, Canadian culture is clearly not separate from American (laughs) culture, and that, like, we actually have a lot um, more in common with people that are living closer to us, that are just, they just happen to be on the other side of the border, Mm -hmm. um, than we do... uh, I don't know. Like Ottawa. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Like, is it like whatever manufactured Canadian identity is supposed to. Exist? Right. Right. Oh, just like Canadian identity as a whole. That just like gets me so riled up. Sometimes I'm like, um, we're not qualified to talk about it though. Cause we're Americans. <laughs> well, I'm a dual citizen. <laughs> I'm not. So <laughs> oh, true. I'm not qualified. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's I have to recuse for, myself for, but like one of the aspects of Canadian identity, I think is like, the whole view of being passive or being like the good guy, the nice guy. But really oh, that's yeah. just like, it's just that the atrocities are more covert and hidden and um, not as spoken about or like visible um, as a lot of other places, which I feel like is almost worse, you know? Like, yeah, it's really mm-hmm. dishonest. Yeah, it's so dishonest and just, you know, um, building this whole identity around being better than, or like at least we're not the Americans, kind of thing. Oh like God. I think um, there's a. There's but when a, the two countries work hand in hand, it's like to what extent, you know, mm-hmm. when the U.S. is yes. your best friend, to what extent is it really like pertinent to distinguish yourself from the U.S.? You know? Exactly, and when you yeah. when you also send soldiers to Iraq and Afghanistan, exactly. or when you also yeah, and you're both settler colonial structures, one hundred percent, exactly, and connecting to like the Black Lives Matter movement and just police brutality as a whole. Um, there's a writer and a journalist, Desmond Cole, who wrote The Skin We're In, and there's also like a CBC documentary that um, he directed and and shot and everything, and 
he his whole like thesis or idea is just like challenging the idea that Canada is separate from you know colonial colonial mindset um the Americanized version of like you know the American dream and um you know we can't separate ourselves from the things that happen with our, our own like you know back door like you know what what's happening here so he yeah. researched a lot about police brutality specifically in Toronto and just comparing statistics and um yeah really exposing the problem in the root of everything mm. when no one else not the, a lot of people are um reporting on it but yeah do you have the name of that article handy it's a book so it's called the oh, skin we're in by desmond okay. cole and it's also a short cbc documentary and i think there's a longer version out now um cool yeah he's really awesome uh he also just like posts a lot on social media and did work for one of the major news outlets but I think has since left. Um, mm. Yeah. I think um, talking about the effect of the Black Lives Matter movement here as well, um, and talking about like Canadian identity set up against American identity as a, oh, well, at least we're not that bad. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it's, I feel like the Black Lives Matter movement has really helped expose the institution of policing as an inherently mm -hmm. um, destructive and damaging force, right? And mm -hmm. I think that for a long time, obviously that's been evident in the States, but here the ideological response has very much been, oh, well, we're not so bad. We're not the States, etc. It's not as bad as it is there. But like, um, the movement is helping expose how brutal policing is and continues to be here and everywhere else on the globe, mm -hmm. especially in regards to how the police are um, dispossessing indigenous peoples of their land. Mm -hmm. The ongoing um, struggle for indigenous justice here is um, absolutely insane. I mean, like if you look at what's going on in Furry Creek right now, which uh, of course the media is not reporting on at all, mm -hmm. um, We've got one of the largest acts of civil disobedience in history, like over 11, or uh, in, in Canadian history, my bad. Um, but over 1,100 people have been arrested trying to defend uh. this uh, land for its old growth um, mm -hmm. trees from logging. Right. Um, mm. And there's also lots of action happening all over the country in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en Nation and their struggle against the um, pipeline, mm -hmm. right? And none of this is being talked about or reported on yeah even though these actions yeah. are, are happening all over yeah definitely and that just reminds me i was reading some of um chomsky's uh manufacturing consent book earlier and he talks about worthy and unworthy victims specifically pertaining to how the media reports on different like violent acts that are happening so for instance like i don't know kind of questioning like to what extent is it ethical for Canada to report on international atrocities and condemn different countries for what they're doing when they're not even reporting on the things that are happening in their own, you know, in their own space or the space that they occupy? Um, yeah, so it's just really, I feel like, a crime to, to not report on everything that's happening. But that said... Um, the reporting that does need to happen should be led and self-determined by the people who are resisting and are on the front lines. So I think that 
one aspect of that being enacted in our lives is through social media. Like Mm -hmm. there are so many indigenous activists and different people who are on the front lines reporting every day on what's happening and choosing how they're being represented. And I think that that is like a great sign of hope and uh, can reach a really broad audience because you know you're not going to get behind a paywall of like if you want to read the rest of this article please pay us <laughs> blah 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 yeah. so <laughs> it also just showcases a completely different perspective right? yeah I, I mean i know that like um in my own life just seeing some of these um confrontations with the police uh and just the struggle up close and personal from the perspective of the people that are defending their land it is a very powerful um force that pushes you in a specific direction Mm -hmm. and i think that the kind of democratization of um these viewpoints and the kind of like loss of control over the narrative that the mainstream media um has experienced with um the evolution of Mm -hmm. social media Mm -hmm. is a huge factor that is driving um our culture in the directions it's moving like for better and for worse yeah, I, I have this, I just wrote down this headline last week, I believe from The Guardian, which I think is just a great example of the just like surreal disconnect between what we kind of are in, inherently know what's going on and that things are real and that uprisings are happening and that the system is not working. But sometimes the things that the media spits back at us just don't make any sense. Mm-hmm. So the the headline was, how Facebook fails 90% of its users. Um, And then the subtitle was internal documents show company routinely placing public relations, profits, and regulatory concerns over user welfare. And I read that and it kind of like (laughs) went down easily, blah, blah, blah. But then I was like, but wait a minute. This is like, this is like water is wet. Like (laughs) everyone knows this. People who've never been on Facebook know this. And like, it was just for me just an insane example of like well of course they're they're placing profits over user welfare they're a mm-hmm. company yeah anyway so just i feel like just daily you can have these examples of the mainstream media spitting things back at you that you're just like am i crazy or are you guys crazy what's happening here like yeah, <laughs> yeah no for sure it's like part of it is um the the liberal understanding of our social structures and everything um, doesn't account for, at least it doesn't seem to, uh, a lot of the systemic forces that drive corporations to make the decisions that they do, mm-hmm. that drive our system to develop in the way that it does. And um, especially under neoliberalism, with like stripping away of regulation as much as possible, and um, basically setting up our system so that the government provides tons of money to corporations, keeps them afloat while denying services to the bulk of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just so, it's just so ridiculous. And I think like the, um, the deep contradictions in the ideology are really being exposed during this time and helping people look for something new. Mm-hmm. Um, and what fills me with hope is that even if we don't have super concrete action or um super concrete uh answers for every single problem that exists we do have real alternatives Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. um supporting the status quo and just hoping that you know uh eventually justin trudeau might improve things (laughs) like 
the mm. the possibility for developing regional autonomy mm -hmm. where we are and um, developing our ability to not rely on the state to strengthen our communities and be able to sustain our, each other mm -hmm. um, is really exciting, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the main things that it seems like a lot of people in our generation are struggling with today is this pervasive feeling of hopelessness or, or powerlessness that um, just has, has seeped into like every bit of our understanding of the world. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think it's easy for people our age and just youth in our generation to feel nihilistic about the future because we're living under so many overlapping crises, like, you know, pandemic, climate crisis, like just so many things. Um, you know, various forms of oppression. It's very easy for us to just be like, well, we don't have a future, you know, even with like housing crisis as well. Like I've thought many times, like if I'm like, if I am, I ever going to be able to afford a place or, mm -hmm. you know, and I know there's this whole like internal battle of like, how ethical is it to have kids and to mm -hmm. knowing the future that my might lie like lay ahead. So, um, but I do think that challenging nihilism with hope is very important. I know that I feel like hope can sometimes seem like a passive response to violence or oppression, but I do think that in a lot of cases, it's like a courageous and um, intentional choice to resist the very systems that endanger our own hope like mm -hmm. for our future and like oppressors don't want you to feel hopeful like yeah. that's the whole point right yeah hopelessness is inherently conservative exactly and there's um these two scholars or actually i guess i think there's three who um wrote the paper but two in particular vicky reynolds and riel dupuy rosso who is a gaingahaga therapist and scholar they talk about the concept of believed in hope, which is distinct from hope in that it's based on direct action and, um, you know, sovereignty and self-determination. And yeah, it just, it really points to the fact that, um, I think also another scholar, Alan Wade talks about how despair points to what we long for. So utilizing our hopelessness, to understand what we don't want and then envisioning a new future, which also I feel like I'm throwing around a bunch of terms, but also <laughs> connects to like abolition in that refusing the urge to fix a system that is unfixable and yeah. mm -hmm. instead envisioning a new future or, you know, implementing things that have existed since time immemorial, which is like indigenous ways of knowing and, um, ways of being that have protected the environment and our communities for so long up until capitalism and colonialism. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. I like that perspective of what you said about despair, about it showing us, showing us what we, what we do care about and what we're so sad to not have or to be losing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it, I think it, what it made me think of is some scholars that do work on um, like sociologists who do work mm -hmm. on, um, the growing 
inaccessibility of the markers of adulthood for, mm. for people yes. of the millennial generation and of following generations where buying a house is no longer affordable. Um, and that used to be something that was associated with marriage. Um, mm -hmm. Marriage used to be much more associated with having a certain level of uh, financial security, mm -hmm. uh, having kids is obviously still very much linked to a certain level of financial security. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and it, there's, there's this book called Coming Up Short that does a really good job of examining through the lives of various people, the the ways in which people are putting off these markers of adulthood. And, mm. um, and it's both very sad and very sobering and also, um, I mean, well, three things. I think it's very sad and very sobering. It also... I think is a really good way to push back against people who kind of try to infantilize younger generations and say that blah, 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 we don't um, know things or don't try hard enough or don't put our priorities straight, whatever. Mm -hmm. I think it's very a good way to push back against that. Yeah. But I, I also think it's, it, it opens up an interesting space um, through that despair of, of being like, well, what's important in, in marriage? Um, does my emotional life actually need to rely on a heterosexual uh, marriage with someone where I live in a nuclear family? Mm -hmm. Or right. are there other ways to, to have that love and to have that intimacy yeah. with different people or in a different financial situation? So just to sum up that um, little journey into sociology, um, what it made me think of when Al brought up the term despair was the way in which you know some of these markers of adulthood that I mentioned are no longer accessible. But it, that inaccessibility, while I do want people to be able to choose how to live their life and to, to live however they want to live and have access to that, I feel that it, it's also a moment for experimentation where, okay, a traditional kind of successful, um, maybe well-off, like heterosexual coupling with children in a house is no longer accessible. Mm -hmm. It's very sad, but it's also, for me, it also maybe forces us to think about the alternatives and what other sources of intimacy or of security we want, and maybe to reconnect ourselves with our values. And mm -hmm. instead of just looking at the structures and the markers of what a successful life is, thinking about what our values actually are and putting them into practice. And for me, that's, that's like kind of a hopeful opportunity that I see in a time of great, um, great uh, despair, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, the opportunity for experimentation is part of what's really exciting about this time. Yeah. Because um, even if these things aren't available to us any longer, um, are they things we even want? That's, that's literally what I was just thinking as well, is like, in terms of like the nuclear family and like, you know, a heterosexual coupling, like, in a sense, like, marriage is an institution in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And, like, I think it was, like, Frederick Engels who just talks about, like, the whole origin of the family in, like, the nuclear heterosexual sense is a form of patriarchy um, and oppression and um, a way to, like, assert status generationally. And so... Yeah, it just like thinking about those things and sometimes like inaccessibility, despair can actually make me feel more empowered and like more validated in terms of like just specifically like queerness. Mm -hmm. Like I feel like for me, my queerness like extends in every point, like every part of my life and gives me the opportunity 
to, you know, live in the way that I want to live in and um, in the ways that don't fit into like binaries or the status quo of like what a successful family looks like, you know? Yeah, definitely. Like challenging a lot of these existing structures, um, it, it feels like it's legitimized in some sense if mm. like uh, they're not accessible. And mm-hmm. I don't know, like there's just such a recognition that like um, these very constrained roles that we're really forced into um just don't capture the full experience of what it means to be human and mm. human in these times. Mm-hmm. And freeing ourselves from those false limitations, I think, um, is really, like, exciting. I mean, yeah. I, I don't... That's that's something that seems, like, really new. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know that we would be able to move towards that place in any other time than the one we're living in. And mm-hmm. I, I'm really excited to be participating in it. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Another topic I'd like to discuss is avenues for direct action um, in Montreal. Um, so obviously <laughs> there's a lot of problems that we're all facing right now. Uh, one of the most pressing is housing issues. Um, there's various things that we can be doing to address these actively, such as like forming tenant unions, forming unions in general. Um, but there needs to be a much stronger emphasis on, um, building communities of care and networking together in solidarity with our neighbors, unhoused or otherwise, um, to mutually support each other. Mm-hmm. Would either of you like to speak to creating communities of care at all? What do you Um, think? I definitely agree that from what I understand, um, I've never been involved in like a housing, um, an effort like specifically to address housing or the expropriation of housing. But from what I can tell, um, landlords and developers do try to divide and sort of play to people's interests, uh, play people's interests against each other. So this idea of, you know, having a strong network of communication, of understanding that, you know, your neighbors are there for you and that, you know, passing information to one another, just, you know, thinking of my fr- my friend's apartment block, they, instead of dealing with the, the, um, the landlord individually, they all kind of communicate. And so this guy's shenanigans are kind of clear to everyone Mm. Um, just things like that. I think when we're in this, this power unbalance with someone who has so much control over our lives in owning the place where we live, it's very important to get together with others and, um, put our, put our heads together and put our influence together. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. 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 And like just the whole concept of united action, like that just makes me like smile just knowing that there are like people who are banding together, like within a neighborhood, um, to push back and to like, um, yeah, band together. And yeah, I think communities of care is really important, especially just like building care filled spaces. Um, that's something that like, uh, a lecturer I had one year, Brooke Deer mentioned about like the whole concept of a care filled space in our interpersonal relationships and then extending to community 
and then broader as well and like what that means and what are the characteristics that exist within that and between each other so I think yeah there should be a lot of like importance put on how do we work together um, reciprocally respectfully and mutually benefit one another um, especially between you know like all have said between housed and unhoused folks um, you know our unhoused neighbors and um, considering them part of our community as well and you know in integrating more mutual aid like um, Montreal Solidarity Supply and mobilizing Milton Park and different initiatives like that. And um, those are both organizations that are active in the Milton Park area, trying to provide support to our unhoused neighbors. Um, they are both based on ideals of solidarity, not charity, so trying mm -hmm. to actually strengthen and empower the community. Um, though these things do have limits mm -hmm. and one of the things that would be really helpful in terms of the housing struggle is um, converting a lot of these unused, unoccupied buildings that are just sitting around laying vacant in the city into um, affordable housing. And not affordable housing that is necessarily run by the government and has uh, all sorts of restrictions on who is and who is not allowed to be there, but... Um, mm -hmm unconditional housing mm. uh, that gives people the shelter, the necessities that they require to survive mm -hmm. so that they can begin healing and begin making yes. a recovery from. Yeah. Yeah. The whole like housing first model is really important, I think, because for so long um, and in a lot of shelters, unfortunately, you know, you have to be, for instance, like sober, not on substances or, you know, to a certain level in terms of maybe healing or um, just being viewed as worthy of housing, but really like housing first model and really emphasizes the fact that people need their basic people like need their basic needs fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And it's just as simple yeah. as that providing a shelter, which is a basic human need, food, water, you know, warmth and safety can really open a door for healing and recovering and, um, yeah. I think too, again, I'm not a particular expert or very experienced in this area, but something that seems very flagrant to me too is just the criminaliz criminalization mm. of being poor oh, or of real. living on the street. Mm -hmm. And it's like, even, even before we talk about solutions like providing housing, which are obviously very, very needed and very basic things to provide, it's also like, well, you know, if someone's doing their best to survive on right. the street and is putting together what resources they have with other mm -hmm. people, maybe don't evict them, you know, mm -hmm. maybe, <laughs> maybe don't value that like public park over this right. person's um, home that they're creating. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've seen big, last year we saw a big uh, uh, occupations and, and, and encampments that were evicted in Oshlaga on Notre Dame. We also saw this, we've seen the same trend over previous years in various American cities. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's surprising to, having seen up close um, the eviction of the camp in, on Notre Dame, it's, it's, it's surprising to see that violence, um, well, surprising to me, probably not to other people, but to see that violence up close of just being like, oh, we're going to criminalize people right. trying to just have a... a, a a tent over their heads mm -hmm. and it it's just yeah. such a basic thing that could just um uh the, it, yeah 
it's just a basic a basic thing that I think would go a long way to mm-hmm. taking the boot off the neck a little bit. Yeah, one hundred percent. And it's um, it, it can be hard to wrap your head around like where the people that are enforcing these things are coming from. I've, I've seen Indeed. I've seen police like confiscate homeless people's bags or tents or whatever, uh, or just break their stuff and like it's it's really um just befuddling uh, you can like be mm-hmm. watching someone perform this act that mm-hmm. is like, clearly just like inhuman and cruel yep and they still for whatever reason are convinced that they're doing the right thing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's so it's so frustrating to um see that and to see like okay you're getting paid like what 80,000 a year I don't, like you're covered in all this expensive equipment. Mm-hmm. There's the cop car and everything, and it's like instead of like using that money to criminalize and do violence to these people that are just trying to survive, we really could use it to solve the actual underlying yep. problems. Exactly. Which is like mm-hmm. 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 For sure. No, I totally agree. In terms of like other avenues of um, struggle in Montreal, one thing that I would like to see more of is focus on building food sovereignty. Mm. So we all know mm-hmm. that the climate crisis is happening. We know that um, the global supply chain that keeps us fed is um, very vulnerable. And it seems highly likely that as conditions worsen, as things become more unstable, Um, there will be disruptions and we need to be prepared. So we need to be focusing more to local food production and food production in ways that acts in harmony with um, the environment. Things like permaculture and food forests, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And this isn't a topic that like I... um, have like very in-depth knowledge of but I do know that there's ways to very efficiently produce food on a, a large scale um, within our area. Yeah. And we're, we are particularly lucky in Quebec in terms of like our ecological resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the fact that we could begin strengthening our ecosystem while mm-hmm. building up our capacity to survive and take care of each other um, and honestly, probably eating better, like yeah. tastier food in the process. Oh, it's like, so much better. Like, um, I worked for two summers on an organic farm in Ontario and then an organic farm in BC. And yeah, you just gain a different appreciation for food and what goes into one tomato <laughs> when you're like, you know, putting in all of that work to create that one tomato or, you know, like. Uh, steward that process and yeah I think it's just like a big shift in knowledge and like just thinking about how we eat and um, where our food comes from and who like which hands are behind it too like just so many like um, there's so much uh, unpaid labor also like uh, lower wage workers and migrant workers in the u.s and canada Mm -hmm. who put their lives at stake so that you can have your salad and that work is so hard regardless of how much you're being paid um 
you know, even if you do have the best conditions, still working as a farmer every single day is like <laughs> takes a toll. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so like um like just thinking of people who aren't even compensated properly for that, it's really sad. But it also emphasizes the point that we all need to have our hands in the dirt. <laughs> yeah. So. And just to build on that a little bit, like um I know that a lot of the labor that goes into our local production is generally prison labor. Mm. Uh people that like are getting paid, you know, two, three dollars an hour. It's practically modern slavery. And yeah. the um disproportionate way that uh our prison system affects the indigenous community makes it even more um messed mm-hmm. up, like beyond belief. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think too, um I think the thinking about food production is a really, for me, a good argument for, for collectivity, actually, Mm -hmm. because I've seen a lot of small scale projects of people who are sort of more in the homesteading um, scene or just are trying to produce uh, vegetables for themselves. And A, often our focus is on uh, fruit and vegetables, um, and less so grains, which make up a big part of our di- but our diet and right. our caloric intake, actually. Mm-hmm. And B, I've seen the way in which it, it like you were saying, Elle, it dominates your life, actually. Mm-hmm. The, the amount of work that it takes to, to create the nutrients and the calories that we need mm-hmm. um, is truly, inc- it's, it's both humbling and it just, or almost frightening (laughs) because you you just see how much work it takes. So for me, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a very good argument for, um, for collectivity, for, for collectively managing how we are going to do this because individually it's too hard and Mm -hmm. it's going to leave, you know, not everyone has access to land um, and cities are growing cities are where the world's population is living. And so, yeah, Anyway, for me, for me, it's just a, mm-hmm. a point that really proves our need to, to have relationships between different kinds of collectives that can support each other and rely on each other. Definitely. Yeah. For sure. Just, yeah, your point about, like, collectivity reminds me of, like, just, like, for instance, like, within meat production, like, obviously, it's a very unsustainable, situ- like, uh, system. But also thinking about, like, sustenance hunting specifically in Nunavut and, like, Inuit um, Nunangut, which is, like, just the area of Canada that Inuit live in. And the whole concept of, like, um, community freezers. So, like, when a hunter will Mm. go out, they'll bring back what they have um, harvested and they'll share it dispersed amongst the community, prioritizing members of the community that are... Um, more vulnerable or at risk so elders and people who have different conditions and also children and yeah just the whole concept of like collective sharing Mm -hmm. and um even like yeah it's it's really cool and using every part of the animal and um having a connection with that process is really cool yeah and i think um Another part of collectivity that just seems like incredibly important is just spreading labor out across our collective body Mm -hmm. and using our collective body effectively. When we get like um, crammed into a completely individualist mindset and we live in a social structure that's set up to isolate us, we not Mm -hmm. only are ineffective in our communities, but we um, are not able to operate at a capacity that... um, 
would allow us to flourish. Right. And when we mm-hmm. actually do spread work out across all of us, we find that um, we are able to achieve a standard of living that is like significantly higher. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can barely make a basic everyday decision by myself. So. <laughs> yeah, oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah. I need collectivity at every level. Oh, yeah. Ugh. Well, we're getting to the end of our Peanut time. Peanut butter here. on my toast. Toast. <laughs> uh, we're getting to the end of our time here, but it's been really, really great having you both on. Thank yeah. you so much for coming on the show. Thank Alan, you. Laura. Thanks so much for the, it was a really great conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it went really well. Yeah. Science of the Times is a production of CKUT Public Radio. Um, the opinions and views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the station. We thank them very much for providing us with the equipment and resources we need to get the word out. Um, please tune in to us next week and uh, have a great day. <laughs>